Hello and welcome to the Director's Wall podcast, Coppola cast season, our second season, I guess. Uh, I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. I'm Brian Connolly, the other guy. All right. So working our way through Coppola's filmography, uh, we talked about some movies he directed. Now we're back to a project he just wrote, the Oscar-winning juggernaut Patton, released in 1970. We're in 1970. It's so exciting. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about Patton, mostly because that means we get to watch The Godfather next. So uh, I did I did really like Patton. Uh, so is it? Uh, let, let's talk about the wine first. So because right. we're still in COVID nineteen lockdown. Uh, we had to settle with whatever wine was willing to be delivered. Uh, and so we got, again, it's a repeat. We've done this wine before early on, but we're doing the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection 2017 Black Label Claret 1910 type Cab Seven Sauvignon. It's very good. I, I believe this is one that you liked uh, when we did it last time. AJ. Yeah, I liked it. I like it now. Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, but it's also like a blend of other wines, I believe. Claret is a Cabernet Sauvignon-based wine blended in the classic Bordeaux style that exhibits exceptional depth and texture with truly unique flavors. Our Claret bottle is distinguished with the gold netting that really serves no purpose. Um, <laughs> My the thing I got was really tight on the bottle, and it looked a lot uh, better than the last time we had this wine. Really? Yeah. Yeah, mine's all messed up now. It's just kind of a little bent up, and it looks like it's broken. But it's a good wine. I'm glad we're drinking it. It's uh, it might be a while till we get one we haven't done before. It just depends on what. You know, I looked up Twin Liquors. They had two wines, and one we had just done. And this one. So I was like, okay. So may maybe before next episode, I'll do like a curbside pickup from a Specs or something like that. They had, well, this was the only Coppola wine at my closest Specs. Um, hmm. So, I mean, we'll just see. Maybe they'll get something else in stock, hopefully, or something, man. You know, AJ, these are white people problems. There's <laughs> <laughs> real, real problems in the world. Not the Coppola wine uh, availability, but you know, we, we make do in these trying times with what kind of red wine that we can get. Um, so we're doing Patton. Is it your turn to do the plot of Patton? It is, it is. I end up with the war films somehow. That's true. All right, well, take it away. All right, so Patton released in April of 1970 was uh, the story of the life of General Patton, though actually it's just about Patton in war, which is really all that you need to say about Patton because he's this figure that was like made for war and you can't imagine him having any kind of personal life. So the film opens uh, with, uh, in 1943, with the American forces arriving in North Africa, German Field Marshal Rommel has been beaten back by Montgomery, but they're still not doing great. And they know there's one guy, one tank commander that can straighten all this out and defeat Rommel. So and they're like, oh no, you don't mean Patton, do you? So uh, the film has a few different parts to it. It's a big epic war film Though I really think if it's more just like a drama with some war battles in it, maybe we'll talk about that later. So the film starts out, it's in North Africa. He fights Rommel. He really like respects Rommel and he wants to have like a one-on-one -on -one match with Rommel. He literally wants to have a one-on-one -on -one, like joust. <laughs> like he gets in his tank and Rommel gets in his tank and they fight each other and whoever wins, that decides the, who wins the war. Uh, so yeah, he sees Rommel as like this great equal that he can fight. From there, he uh, he and Montgomery take back the island of Sicily, 
Things don't go the way he wants exactly, but he manages to still revel in glory. But then things turn south for him when he slaps a soldier. That really derails Patton's career politically. He's taken out of command. He doesn't have an army. It's a real low point. But his friend, General Omar Bradley, played by Carl Malden, has been uh, put in charge of a army, a big battalion. So then he gives Patton the command of the third army and they just tear ass through France. He wants to go all the way to Berlin, but Bradley holds him back and he's in the south of France or somewhere. Anyway, Patton, it's probably what he's most famous for. He saves the 101st Airborne at Bastogne commonly referred to as the Battle of the Bulge, because they were stuck way the hell out in front of the rest of the American line. So it looked like the American line had a bulge in it. And that was the big, really big battle. It was the, uh, historically, it was the, the last go for the Nazis. If they didn't win this battle and take Bastogne in Belgium, then they didn't have a chance of winning the war. And so Patton, he gets this really big glorious victory then he just kind of muddles around after the war is over and it's like becomes administrative and he's like i want to fight the russians let me fight the russians everyone's like no 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 and then the film ends with Patton just kind of walking off into the distance as a i don't know if it was a poem he wrote is recited by george c scott but he walks off uh, with his dog and the film ends and that's the life of Patton. Patton was played by George C. Scott in an Oscar winning performance, which he refused. Refused because he said, I didn't sign up to be as part of some like contest where it was like some, you know, show of who's better than I'm not sign up to be better than some other actor. I don't want it. So he didn't want it. He didn't show up. And then, Per his request, it was given back to the Academy the next day. Like somebody took it in his name that night, and then the next day it was just given back, being like he didn't want it, just take it back. So it's probably melted down and made into uh, you know an Oscar for Helen Hunt many years later. Carl Malden apparently was the only person from Patton present. He accepted the Best Director Award. And he accepted another award because, uh, like, the director wasn't there, George E. Scott wasn't there, Coppola wasn't there because he was making The Godfather. Uh, why was the director not there? Was he directing something else, too? I'd have to assume there's no note on that on the Wikipedia or IMDb page. Um, and this is to note the first Oscar that Coppola has won was for this movie, for a screenplay. And it was a screenplay he wrote a long time ago. Because we, we talked a little bit about this in the last episode where he had written the uh, Is Paris Burning? And there's a scene in that where Kirk Douglas plays Patton. And that scene was very light. And it, it is the best scene in that long, not very good movie, I feel, is the scene with Patton and Kirk Douglas. And then he was hired to write Patton and then they didn't make it. This was like in what, 66 or whatever. And then yeah, it was, so it just kind of sat around and then they finally made it. So there's another person listed as screenwriter. And he just, did that guy rewrite Coppola's script? Because I supposedly yeah. most of Coppola's script is what you see. In the- yeah, he wrote, he, he did a rewrite and he is the writer that they hired like right before the movie was going into production. And he was, Coppola himself speculates, only speculates, he doesn't know for sure, that he, uh, the other writer, was like on set, like writing scenes as they go, changing things like on an as-needed location-based uh, basis. Uh, Coppola, I listened to the, the commentary on the DVD, or I listened to most of it, which Coppola does. Wow. And he keeps saying, it's weird doing a commentary for a movie that you didn't direct because most commentaries you talked about like what happened while you were making the movie, but he wasn't on set making the movie. So there's long chunks where he's silent and says, oh, sorry, I was just watching the movie. There. <laughs> but he is throughout is like quick to give credit to Edmund H. North for doing 
you know, like rewriting scenes if Coppola doesn't remember like writing a, a scene a certain way. It's like Edmund North probably rewrote that. It was an interesting, I wonder why they hired him as the writer to help with this because he was sort of like, like he, he this was a man born in 1911, like Ed, Edmund North is 19, and he wrote uh, Day the Earth Stood Still in 1951. Huh. And he, you know, wrote a lot of television. And so I wonder why he was the guy to come. Like he never wrote anything that was like so great that's like we need to get this guy to work on pet and like I love the day the earth is still but like he kind of just wrote a lot of movies that have been forgotten about and then a lot of some TV and then he was hired to do patent which is very interesting so I wonder if yeah. he was sort of like 20th century Fox go-to rewrite guy <laughs> that might be it uh, Patton is one of his very last credits on his IMDB page and he won an Oscar for it <laughs> yeah um, it doesn't say he wasn't there, so he probably was there to accept the award, and we that's something we should probably also remind ourselves of while recording this episode is uh, someone else did have a hand in writing the screenplay. <laughs> Give credit where credit's due, you know? Yeah. And credit was actually given to him, so yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting because this movie, so this movie won a lot of oscars it won it was like a big it was like seven oscars or something like that yeah it won seven academy awards it was nominated for eight oh, no sorry it's nominated for ten yeah. um and now we get to talk about the oscars which i love because i love the oscars wasn't this the same year that mash was up for best picture the other sort of war movie yes it was up against mash airport five easy pieces and love story Wow. And this is a weird time when, like, the new Hollywood is happening. There's no denying it. You can't stop it. It's happening. But the Oscars, of course, are, like, two to ten years behind the times. <laughs> so, like, a lot of people, like, there's a good argument, especially in Mark Harris's book, Pictures Out of the Revolution, that the new Hollywood starts in 1967 with The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde and is, in a way, influenced the mainstream studio movies like in the heat of the night which won best picture and guess who's coming to dinner also up for an oscar that year uh other people will say the new hollywood didn't start until 1969 with easy rider and the rain people let's throw that in there too <laughs> uh but yes yeah, so you could see like 1968 oliver wins best picture uh musical about based on Oliver Twist, you know, it's old school throwback, the kind of thing they had been doing all decade long. 1969, Midnight Cowboy wins Best Picture at the Oscars. X-rated movie. X-rated movie, the only X-rated movie to win Best Picture. And that is full on new Hollywood. Like what, like this is how movies are being made now? Yes, it is, deal with it. <laughs> and then it's like the Oscars, uh wanted to backpedal had like a reactionary year and gave it to Patton because it's up against so airport it's like a big budget disaster movie um airplane is a parody of airports it's a very like almost scene by scene parody if you've ever seen airport it's like so much of that is what airplane is it's kind of amazing yeah, it's kind of like if you watch, um, like you watch Austin Powers and you're like, oh, he's making fun of the 60s and everything. But if you watch like From Russia With Love, Mike Myers is parodying Ru From Russia With Love almost scene by scene. Um, anyway, so that's a big budget disaster movie. Uh, the rest of these are like new Hollywood movies. Uh, Love Story, it's a, I don't know why, I just haven't seen it. But it's, uh, you know, it's sentimental. It's a drama. It starts off saying that uh, Catherine Ross is going to die or that Ally McGraw is going to die. So, I mean, just, it's a big crowd-pleasing movie. Five BC Pieces and MASH are unabashedly new Hollywood where it's there, where they are like consciously subverting what Hollywood has been doing previously especially mash which is a war movie that's a comedy about army surgeons 
and it's set in Korea, but it's really supposed to be about Vietnam. And if you watch it, when you watch it, you're just like, yeah, this is Vietnam. Five Easy Pieces is Jack Nicholson on a road trip, not unlike The Rain People and Easy Rider, just kind of not knowing what to do. He is going somewhere specifically, though, uh, to meet, uh, meet up with relatives and just about the people he picks up on the way and the dis, uh, disenchantment, disillusionment he's experiencing in his life. And I liked it a lot better than I thought I was going to. Finally saw that recently. It is interesting, though, in like 1970 when Vietnam is in full swing and people are dying and you go with the war movie that's not MASH because MASH is very much an anti-war movie, 100%. It is so bloody and there's people like, yeah, I mean, it is a comedy, but like the, the surgery scenes, I remember watching this with my dad when I was like way too young. And the only thing he covered my eyes for was in one of the surgery scenes, someone, a patient's, a soldier's artery bursts and there's blood shooting out of his neck. And the nurse tries to cover the blood and calls. And that stuff is like intense and upsetting. I I like MASH. It doesn't play well in uh, 2020. (laughs) It doesn't play well with the 21st century sensibilities. What with all the... uh, misogyny and pranks on like let's like let's uh have everyone see this woman take a shower it'll be hilarious it does a good job at showing how like awful the carnage of war is not the actual battle like once the battle is over and like okay the battle's over but all the people that were wounded in the battle now come to the mash the mobile army surgical hospital and it's i mean so god awful there that then when the the people there aren't in surgery, they're just going crazy because everything is crazy. The war itself is this absurd, crazy phenomena. So then people are acting crazy, uh, crazy when not dealing with the carnage of war. Patton is, is weird because it is a good movie. I liked it. But it is like a very old-fashioned, we're going to make a movie about this war hero and how great he is. And he's just a, a, a controversial figure, but a hero from beginning to end. Yeah. And they definitely, like, they, they show some of the dark side of, like, they, it's not just him being a great leader. Like, there's him killing these donkeys that are blocking the tank on this bridge. And he's like, ah, fuck it. Kill the donkey, throw him over the bridge. Or definitely, like he's, it's like I feel in older war movies, he wouldn't have had someone disobeying so many orders or showing that that happened, that he was just sort of like, fuck, I'm not going to listen to Eisenhower. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then especially the part when he slaps the soldier, which maybe even at the time in 1970 was still like not, I don't think, like now we know what PTSD is and we know that it is a bad thing and it is, it is as awful as being physically injured is mentally injured in a, in a war. And so this person who is described by Patton as a yellow belly, as a coward, because how dare he say he can't fight and he's all nervous and, and rattled when he should just go out there. He didn't like lose a limb. Like what's his problem? And he slaps him in the face. And this actually in real life happened twice. I think Patton did it to two different people in the movie. They show one, but it's just, it is kind of a sad scene because you now that what we know about PTSD, it's just like this poor guy, does have a problem and he shouldn't go back out there. <laughs> he shouldn't. He's so he's so frightened. I mean, he's so suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, which it's a mouthful to say, but it is so accurately describes what that person is experiencing that that person shouldn't be in battle. They're not going to be effective in doing their job of being in the war. Even more. Um, and so, that, so that part is that part is upsetting. Um, but they do definitely still like it's crazy because like talking about like Minette Cowboy winning Best Picture there before. In 1970, you could swear in movies. You could be a little more truthful about humanity as you know, Five Easy Pieces or Mash was. And I feel they definitely held back showing so much more of the true Patton because in real life, he swore a lot. And there's some swearing this, and there's a lot of talk in the movie, like, oh, he's got quite a mouth on him. 
But like he's he son of a bitch and at, like kick ass. He says these PG thirteen swears. But I guess like the big like the big iconic scene at the beginning of the movie where George C. Scott goes out in front of the big American flag and gives like a speech, and those are all snippets of actual speeches that Patton gave. But they were still watered down. I guess the real speeches had much coarse language in it. And then also the movie doesn't go into the fact that he was incredibly uh, anti-Semitic. <laughs> thought concentration camps were a good idea. You know, things that, you know, maybe if they moved the movie now, they put that in there because we don't shy away from showing kind of the darker side of, of people. Uh, but this movie kind of takes that away to kind of be like, no, no, he's really, he was a great guy, a great leader. He had his problems, but, you know, he, he helped us out. <laughs> yeah, Patton, yeah, the real George S. Patton was like, a, yeah, good soldier. You don't want him... You probably don't want to spend a lot of time with him personally. You definitely don't want him in politics, which he had absolutely no interest in. Good. But yeah, he was of that this mindset, which is conveyed in a much more uh, kind of watered down style in the movie of like, yeah, like, yeah, Hitler, like the Nazis and the Hitlers. He, he's got the Hitlers. I screwed that up. The Nazis and Hitler have, uh, they've got some good ideas, and I respect their soldiers, like Rommel, but they're the enemy, so I have to fight them and beat them because that's my duty as a soldier. Not that he, like, thought, like, what they're doing is, like, purely evil and must be stopped as soon as possible. It's like, yeah, I'm a soldier, they're my enemy, I'll go fight them. I also have respect for them. And it, it's, an inter- it's interesting because they, they touch on this in this movie too. He, he believed strongly in reincarnation and thought that he had only been living life as a soldier for the past you know, centuries and centuries. And, he, and in the movie he talks about, oh, I was there with Napoleon. Oh yeah, I was there. And I was there when the Romans did this. And he like, there's a part where he has a car driving and he makes him drive down the road. He's like, we're going to go here. We're going to go this way. And I'm like, where are we going? And he's drawn to this ancient place where he knew that there was a battle that he once fought in uh, one life, many lives ago. And he's just been put in the universe for war only and has lived through war time and time again, which would be a great TV series. I would love to see a show like a serious version of Black Adder where it's every version of Patton whatever <laughs> century and he just keep going. He keeps coming back. <laughs> yeah that's um there's not much about Patton personally you don't get like where he's from if he's married or has children I have no idea from watching this movie I don't know about his private life and you feel like the movie's not interested in that because the real Patton probably also wasn't very interested in that and so what we get in terms of building up his character are these scenes of him philosophizing about war and taking a detour to this place in North Africa where there was a battle between Carthage and Rome and he knows like that he was there and he described what happened and there's a scene where he is being given some award and the person giving him the award says like says like uh, yeah like Napoleon if you had been alive in the 18th century like Napoleon sure could have used you and he says, but well, I was alive in the 18th century. And everyone laughs. But he was being totally serious. And there's a few other scenes like that. And those are the scenes that really humanize yeah. Patton and make you, like, draw your sympathy for him for this really gruff, brash, controversial, like, easily controversial uh, character that you probably wouldn't, not only wouldn't get along with, even if you like agreed with him, but you wouldn't want to be around if you were alive at the same time as him. I, li- I like that it's not a cradle to grave biography. I like that it's just about this one snippet of what of when he did it. And I love when they make a, a, a movie about a person that's just about that kind of, like a moment. That's so good. Like that's so much more interesting than he was a kid and then he did this and then he did this and then he did this and then he died. You know, like to go through that kind of story is not as fascinating as like, let's just go into this one moment in his life and just see what it's all about. 
and then get it, get out of there. And I really, I really liked that about this movie because you expect it to be this big story of who this person was. And you still do know who this person is, but just through watching them in this short amount of time working. Uh, yeah, I've been watching a lot of older uh, classic movies from the 30s. And when they did a biography, they did it cradle to grave. And you can tell even then that they know the early part of someone's life, their childhood is the least interesting part. So those scenes are always really rushed through. And then it gets to the part of you know their life where they're an adult and actually doing the stuff that made uh, merited a movie being made about them. Yeah. So, and we think of that as like a more recent phenomena of focusing in on a certain period of a real person's life. Yeah. But it happens sporadically throughout the history of filmmaking. And this is one of those times. And because the film knows that this is what Patton was for. This is this is the most interesting part of his life. So this is what we're going to show. I wonder what what like was Coppola fascinated by Patton or did he just write this because he happened to write that one script and then was told the news or did he actually have an interest in World War II or Patton? Because I was it, thinking like what's great about Coppola amongst his peers is that like he got all his war stuff out as a young man. It's now as an old man, he's not, he doesn't make war things. Whereas like Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg have turned into every 60 year old dad who just is, wants to be watching History Channel things about World War II and talking about it and making those things. And Coppola has no interest in that at all. He hasn't made a war movie since, you know, I think Apocalypse Now was the last war movie he made. Uh, and so I wonder, like, if he, if he was interested, like, was his, did, because he never fought in a war. Did his dad fight in World War II or, like, did, like, did he have, a connection to it or just being from that generation and the generation right before you what they did did this thing that you have an interest in it i think it's just being from part of that generation i don't remember if his father served had any military service i know coppola himself did not though he did attend a military school in which uh he was in the marching band and played the tuba <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no actual military service. And it seems like he just took this job just as a job. He happened to write a war movie. So he got hired to write another war movie and did research on Patton. It seemed like what his foot into actually putting his heart into the movie was finding a way to present this controversial figure and all his good stuff and all his bad stuff presenting that to a mainstream audience and uh trying to put on screen a character that everyone will sympathize with whether they're liberal or conservative with vietnam i mean by the time the movie came out vietnam was full-on 1966 it was kind of just starting but americans were definitely in in it by that point so he wanted to like satisfy the liberals and also the conservatives, get into both sides of the character. That's what drew him into the picture. And to me, the most Coppola thing about this film is presenting this unlikable person in a sympathetic way, which we'll see him do uh, masterfully in our next episode with The Godfather. I feel like um, this movie is definitely well-liked, like not just because it won a bunch of awards, but like I remember I've always, my whole life I've heard about this movie and I remember it would show on TV all the time and my dad really liked it and other, many dads like this movie. It's like a movie that just is always on TV and people always like it. It always makes or used to make a lot of those like 100 best AFI film lists. I don't know if it does still. It was on the first AFI list when they first did that, when they first started making lists. In my mind, it's probably since dropped down or off in the last 20, 25 years. But um, for a while, I mean, and, and, then, and it's directed by the guy who did Planet of the Apes, which is interesting. Um, and like, was, was that the movie he made right before this? Like, because that was 67, 68, right? 
let's see, Planet of the Apes was 68. So they must have gone from that right into making this movie. Yep. His very next film was Patton. And then after that, he follows it up with Nicholas and Alexandra and Papillon and uh, Islands in the Stream. Oh, that's an adaptation of a Hemingway novel starring George C. Scott. George C. Scott. And then he did Boys from Brazil. Great movie. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, yeah, Franklin Schaffner. I think that's how you say his last name. Like he definitely, I feel like when you look at his filmography, he is just one of those guys who's just a good, dependable studio filmmaker, but with no discernible style that I can really pick up on. Like he just makes good movies that, that, you know, that people like that are epic in a way. And like, yeah, and they still feel very classic Hollywood. Like Patton feels very classic Hollywood uh, to me. It does. It doesn't take a lot of risks or chances in terms of its filmmaking. It's fairly straightforward in the way that it is made, and that's not a detriment to it. That's just like this is just how people used to make movies. It's a lot of like wide shots, and then you get a close up if you need it. And I definitely feel like the interiors of this movie are not as good or well-made as the exteriors. Like, I don't know if it was because the sets look cheap, but whenever they cut from these sweeping scenes of tanks rolling over the desert or the mountains to somebody's office, it looks like it's made of cardboard and it's shot like a television show. And it feels like you're watching a television show and then it'll cut to a movie version where they're in the big open expanse of, of Africa or, or Sicily or whatever. It looks stagey. The interiors of the movie look like a sound, like it clearly is like a soundstage, a poorly put together soundstage set shot from one angle and it just looks cheap. And it's, it's kind of weird that they would give this guy best director when only half of your movie is well directed. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. There's a scene early in the movie where Patton is meeting with uh, other generals to complain about lack of air support. And a British Air Force general says like, oh, like we dominate the skies here. And right at that point, right on cue, some German planes come in and bomb the town where they're in. And the whole, their office gets all shot up. And it's, it, it, it just, there's no way, not for one second, do you now, or I'm sure audiences at the time, believe that this was an office getting shot up. It suddenly turned into a, a set on a soundstage where little explosions are going off as they were uh, as they were set up to. This one, this movie, one of its awards actually was for uh, set decoration. Well, you know, I, the, I believe the things that were on the desks and things like that, that looked believable. But whoever made the actual sets, it was terrible. Like, it took me out of the movie every time because you'd have these epic David Lean-esque wide shots of, you know, hundreds of extras going around. And you're like, oh, wow, look at this, look at this. And then it cuts to inside some office and it looked cheap. And uh, it was poorly, those parts were just so poorly made it was just so basic where it's like wide shot close up it was like felt like coverage the sitcom and then it would go outside to these great big epic hollywood movie things and go back like when you watch bridge on the river kwai another great best picture winning movie by david lean when they go even inside a thing it looks great it doesn't look like oh they went to some crap cardboard you know lot set and then they went outside and they did, it's like, it just like make the whole movie interesting looking like that. Like, yes. I get, you have to have the exposition of info passed between characters over a desk. So, you know, like what's happening outside, but try make it somewhat fascinating. I feel like you can always tell a good director when they can make two people like in a room talking or around a table, fascinating, interesting, and like in, in a new fresh, version of that kind of scene but when it starts feeling stale and it feels like television that's that's when I, you lose me that's when i'm like yeah this movie's not as good as it could be <laughs> <laughs> i absolutely agree and there is something um stagey about the uh in some of the in-between scenes in between battle scenes in Patton, where he's just talking to an aide or an advisor or the uh, the sheik of a 
of a North African country that feel like this is part of a stage play where on the stage you wouldn't see the battle, you would just see this scene of two people talking about the battle. Um, he's like, yeah, I don't want to like take away from the Oscar win of Franklin Schaffner, but it really feels like a lot of Patton's awards were like just caught up in like this is the movie that's going to dominate the Oscars, so we're going, it's going to win like Best Picture, Actor screenplay director uh you know all the awards that it won but like franklin schaffner was up against fellini for satiricon arthur hiller for love story robert altman for mash and ken russell for women in love wow and like i mean yeah nothing like yeah i'm i don't want to slam franklin schaffner but like yeah he won over fellini and altman and Ken Russell. I, I just love what Robert Altman does in MASH. And, and it's also interesting watching this movie because last year at the Oscars, or I guess it was this year's Oscars, there was a lot of complaint that a lot of the movies had very minimal female roles. That Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and the Irishman each had like one female character and they only had like 15 minutes of screen time. This movie has nothing, <laughs> there's no... There are no ladies in it. There's one scene where a lady's dog barks at Patton's dog, and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry to bother your dog. And then that, in that same scene, some lady gives a speech and presents an award to him. Like it's some, they're in some uh, like sandwich club, or don't, it was a donut, donut club. But that's the only time, like literally, that a word comes out of a lady's mouth or that a woman is on screen. Like at the very beginning, you see, you see some women in North Africa kind of as part of the crowd. But there's probably maybe maybe one full minute of dialogue spoken by a female in this entire three-hour movie. Granted, it's about war at a time when there weren't female soldiers, so there's not a lot of that. But it is interesting that like this makes the Irishman seem like there's a lot of female talking. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That is something I was totally aware of while watching the film. <laughs> and the, uh, yeah, the... Uh, female characters that do get to speak are such like non entities in the film that once it was over, I was sure that there were no women in speaking roles, but there was, uh, but there was. That that was interesting. I feel if this movie was made now, they would add like him calling his wife or they would add something to make it not just be like a bunch of dudes for three hours. Um, yeah, there'd have to be something uh, like it would have to. It would probably be a total invention, which would be fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's crazy that it happened then. It definitely wouldn't happen now. Uh-uh. But yeah, even even watching a war film, you're like, wow, there's no women in this movie. Oh, oh there's one. Oh, she's gone. Another interesting thing about this movie that stuck out was the thing about this coming out and when it came out is at the very beginning, as part of his big speech, he talks about how Americans have always won all the wars. We've won all the wars. We've never lost a war. It's never going to happen. And of course, Vietnam is like the first real one that we lost big time on. And that was an inter- I think that was an interesting uh, comment at the time in this movie to have, kind of throw that in there. And I think they, I don't know if that was totally intentional or not, um, or hopeful that we would win the Vietnam War. <laughs> yeah, it reads like it's such a, like such a notable powerful powerful line now and i'm sure at the time but when coppola wrote the screenplay in 1966 yeah vietnam was just just starting and like oh hey we're in this war that we are losing hard and we'll only continue to lose for the next you know like two or five years depending on when you want to say the Vietnam War ended. If you count Rambo 2, it was still going on, even in the mid-80s. We were still, <laughs> did you know there is a sequel to this movie? This movie has a what? sequel. Yeah. With George C. Scott. What? In the 80s. And it's called, like, Patton the Lady Years. So it's about, like, his last days. And it's all another, like, three-hour movie. It was a made-for-TV movie. I'm sure it's terrible and boring. Because the fact that I never heard of this I don't even think it's on DVD. I've never heard anyone talk about it. I can't, it can't be good. But it's about like 
the last few months of, of his life before death. Just him, I don't know, doing what, but <laughs> that exists. George Scott came back like 15 years later to play Patton in a TV movie. That's so weird. That's so weird because um, the one of the points of the film that people would have known about is Patton died in a Jeep accident right at the end of the war. And this film ends with Patton almost dying in a, a runaway hay cart accident. <laughs> like he's just left a, a meeting and a hay cart, like the, the rock that's keeping it from rolling down a hill gets knocked out, gets knocked out and it runs down this hill and Patton's like standing right there at the last minute, Bradley pushes him out of the way. And Patton's like, oh, can you believe I almost got taken out by that? Like, oh, that's no way for a soldier to die. The only way for a real soldier to die is from the last bullet in the last battle of the last war. <laughs> and, then he, uh, and then he takes his dog for a walk, uh, walks off, you know, into, into the sunset. And Omar Bradley looks on at him ponderingly. And Patton gives this, this uh, speech or... I should know if it's a poem or not, but what he says is written and delivered so poetically that I don't remember if it was an actual poem about uh, what Roman Roman generals, when they won a battle, they would get a parade through Rome celebrating themselves. And at the very end of the parade, a slave would put a golden crown on their head and then whisper to them a warning that glory is fleeting and then the film ends until the sequel which is called the last days of Patton <laughs> and the last days of Patton okay just look this up it's about he gets hit by the car and as he's dying and not expected to come back he reminisces on his life and we get his whole life we get the movie that we said we didn't want with this one where he just remembers being a young man and there's like a young guy playing Patton and he's like going in and I was like, that sounds terrible. That sounds so bad. Why did George Scott sign up for that? What a bunch of crap that sounds like. Nobody wants that. Yeah, no, that sounds like the major studio version of Patton that would get made today. Like he's just remembering like falling in love and going to his first war and that sounds terrible. George yeah. Scott is in this movie he is really good and he's always good but like he definitely is into this character and i think this was the first when i was a kid this is the first thing i ever saw with him in it and i feel like in my mind this is just how george c scott was until i saw him in other movies where he's he's still kind of a gruff guy in most things but he definitely is very into this character and he does bring sympathy to a person who's like supposed to be like really you know hard ass and emotionless but he had, but there is like a sad, like an underlying sadness that he brings to it. He's great. And he's really good. Much, much deserved Oscar that he refused. This is probably the first movie I saw with him. And to me, George C. Scott just was Patton or Patton was George C. Scott. Yeah, his performance, he is so dominating the screen and dominating the battlefield as Patton and intimidating and stern and gruff but then also allows for moments where he shows sympathy and doesn't try to hide the fact that he is showing emotion. Like when he visits soldiers in uh, the, the army hospital and he's visiting the wounded and when he's talking to them, he shows real, a real sympathy for the wounded soldiers. And there's a scene where he like whispers something to one of the soldiers and you don't hear what he's saying because it's such a like intimate moment and you believe every every one of those moments it's not like manufactured like oh this is something a patent would do for just for the optics you really believe that Patton really feels for these wounded soldiers that gave everything they had and then right after he has this touching moment with a soldier like wrapped in bandages dying is when he sees 
the soldier with battle fatigue is what they were calling it at the time and slaps him and calls him a coward and orders him to the front lines. So you can see it turn right on a dime, like right after his most like vulnerable, sympathetic moment where you're like, this is a good guy. Then back to the like gruff, loud, abrasive, swearing guy that slaps, <laughs> slaps soldiers with PTSD. I'm a dove to a hawk in just a minute. <laughs> you, you, you wanna feel old? He was 43 in this movie. What? That's a 43-year-old man playing Patton. Yeah. That, that's, that's coming up, baby. <laughs> that's, oh, God. Like, yeah, no, I... <laughs> you know, it's, people looked older back then. <laughs> you know, 43 is the new 23, but back then 43 was the 63. Georgie's kind of so good. I love... And he plays these kind of characters well. Like, it's similar in a way, his character in Dr. Strangelove as sort of like the, he plays another military person in that. I don't know if he's a general or what in that movie. Uh, yeah, that he's a general. He's the like gung-ho uh, war hawk guy that just wants to bomb all of Russia. And it definitely must have 100% influenced him getting this, this part. And like, I think this, and this role kind of is what really made George C. Scott, like before this, he was in movies that people liked. But this was really like fucking George C. Scott is here. And then he became sort of like a much bigger star after this. It was the lead of like, after this, you have like the hospital and they might be giants. And my personal favorite, Hardcore, the Paul Schrader movie where his daughter is kidnapped and inducted and, and put into the uh, porn industry. And he must you know fight all these pornographers and bust through walls like the Terminator to save his daughter. It's an amazing <laughs> that movie I cannot bring myself to watch. Even when I was in my 20s, long before I actually had daughters of my own, I, I cannot deal with what, like, what's going on. Like, the thought of this is so like, harrowing. It's one of I the best. I think, in my opinion, that's his best performance is in Hardcore. He is, so, he is so good in that movie. It's mostly just him punching and yelling at people. He's just angry. It's just a ball of anger for like 90 straight minutes, which is what you want from a George C. Scott. Carl Malden is good in the movie. He's fine. Like, it's nothing to write home about, but he's like, you know, you believe he's that guy, but you're kind of like, yeah. yeah. He's like, then it's kind of, I feel like always Carl Malden. He's, he's dependable. He's a dependable, good. What, what's the Argento movie he's in? Like, he's in the one Argento movie, and he's really good in that. Was it Cat of Nine Tales? But he's, he's, he's good. But you never, I feel like I never not think he's just Carl Malden. Like, there's Carl Malden, good old dependable Carl. Omar Bradley, as presented in this movie and as presented in Is Paris Burning? And what, like, some random comments from another movie that mentions him that I can't remember the name of. He was a very reasonable, sensible, practical guy. Like he was the uh, the counterbalance to Patton. And there's not a lot to do with that character-wise. Bradley does get some speeches or where Malden gets to tell Patton, like, I do this because it's my job. Like you're doing this because you love it. <laughs> and Malden gets to tell Pat, no, I didn't appoint you to the third army which Patton thought that he did and he was very grateful like when I was down my friend you know came and helped me out and gave me a command and I'm serving him now but I'm fine but I'm fine with that because I get to like lead soldiers into battle and then Bradley tells him like no I didn't want to give you that command Ike Eisenhower is only referred to as Ike in this movie like Ike gave you that command if I had been in charge I would have removed you after Sicily they are like of two total, totally different personalities and approaches to war, but something in both of them, they were like so opposites that they needed each other. And I buy that. But unfortunately, that means that the more, <laughs> the more level-headed of the two is the less showy role. So Malden doesn't really get, he's good in the role. He's fine in the role, but he doesn't really get to shine and dominate the screen the way that Georgie Scott does. I wish the movie was shorter. It's long. It's three hours. I feel like definitely 
the first half, if you go by the where the intermission is, the first half is great. And then the second half is just not as good. And it just feels like, because you have a lot of Patton sitting around and waiting for his next order. So it's a lot of him just kind of milling around. And then you have, you have some more war stuff in there. But like, I love that the first half of the movie is just basically two moments, like two battles. Like, and it shows you both things like that he did. And that's interesting. And then the last 90 minutes is just, okay. I agree. Um, the intermission happens right where it should. Is Paris Burning also had an intermission placed so poorly that it angered both of us. This three-hour movie has the intermission at like two hours and 10 minutes. Are you kidding me? But this intermission comes hour and 40 in, and then there's an hour and 10 left after it. So, okay, it's still, it feels long enough to justify an intermission. And it comes right at what in a normal length movie would be the second act break where Patton has been fired. He's really like in the lowest of the low moments. And that's where the second act picks up. And that's where he is mostly because he has Eisenhower and the high command have decided to use him as a decoy for the Normandy landing. So they're going to pretend that Patton is in Calais and that that is where the uh, allies are going to launch into France. So the Germans put all of their defenses in Calais, leaving Normandy less guarded. And Patton is really upset by this and he's like really disheartened that like it's going to be the greatest invasion in the history of war and he doesn't get to be a part of it and you feel like you actually feel sorry for him because that's just how good George C. Scott is at playing this character that's giving you so much to not like about him but then shows enough humanity to then win you back it's it's great but yeah there's less action in the second half and it really does feel just kind of like a lot of padding and then the war ends and then he's still around and there's more scenes of him having like dinners with uh with russian diplomats before we wrap it up and we're getting close to the end i want to talk about i love the jerry goldsmith soundtrack of this movie it's really good and what's funny is that I am very familiar with it because it's sampled in the Burbs. And I saw the Burbs first as a kid. And whenever Bruce Dern's character shows up in the Burbs, they play that little, that kind of that horn, kind of that thing, uh, which is like the kind of the ongoing, uh, you know, like song. The elite motif. Yeah. And that's in the Burbs. Did Jerry Goldsmith do the music for the Burbs? Did he sample himself in that movie? He must have. Because he did. I'm going to look that up. Yes, he did. He did. Uh, well, he was uncredited. Uh, at, like, he didn't do the soundtrack, but he is credited for sampling of the song. For, Derek uh, Goldsmith's score, I believe, yes, nominated for an Oscar, did not win. I oh, know Goldsmith did do the soundtrack to The Burbs. Yeah, that makes sense. He also did uh, First Blood. There you go. He also did the music for the Star Trek movies. The theme that's the Next Generation theme, that's the Jerry Goldsmith song from the motion picture. A, the music from Alien is really good. And and he also did The Omen, which is a great, like, great, memorable soundtrack. And he did Planet of the Apes with Franklin, with, with the director. So, like, that is a dependable uh, composer you want to keep around forever. But that's funny that he quoted himself in the burbs, this song from Patton. You remember that? It's whenever Bruce Dern shows up, they play the little, like, echoey horn segment of the Patton soundtrack on the Burbs soundtrack, and it makes me very happy. No, I'm glad you mentioned that, because when I first heard that, that, that score, that bit of fading trumpets uh, at the beginning of this film, I knew I had heard that before, not just from this movie, but I had heard it in pop culture, and I couldn't remember where. And thank you for mentioning that. Yes, it is absolutely the Burbs. It's, yeah, and Patton was this, um, for being a big studio movie released, probably like the last of the old guard Hollywood movies. It was a big cultural phenomenon. The score gets quoted in, in other movies. The image of Patton standing in front of the flag, giving this monologue at the beginning of the movie is an iconic image. Patton just had a lot of great one-liners. A lot of those he actually said, some of them, a few were, I think they were made up by, by Coppola. Well, I, I am glad that we watched this movie. I don't think I need to watch this movie again. I've seen it a bunch now. 
It's long. It's fine. I wouldn't mind watching this movie again. I don't know that I will anytime soon. As for it in terms of the career of Coppola, he had started the first iteration of American Zoetrope, where they were going to be, it was him and George Lucas and their friends, uh, Walter Murch. They were going to be their own like new studio. And then, of course, it immediately started to not work out the way Coppola had planned it. And they just bought all this expensive post-production equipment to edit their own movies on. To make money, they started renting that out to studios to do post-production. And one of those films was Patton. And he's like, uh, like, what is that war movie? And it's like, oh, this is Patton. Like, oh, Patton? For what? Like, for Fox? Like, yeah, for Fox. Like, oh, I wrote that movie. Like, oh, okay. And the movie comes out and he sees it surprised that what he sees on screen is actually really close to what he wrote. And it wins wins seven Oscars, including Best Screenplay, which it has such a weird, this category had such a weird title. All right, so there was Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium, Adapted Screenplay. Then there was Best Story and Screenplay Based on Factual factual Material or material not previously published or produced. So that's the original screenplay. That's the original screenplay. You're allowed to use the facts of the history. Yeah. To write, to write a thing. Yeah. I think that's, that should still count as original. That you yeah. actually learned about what happened in the world and you can put it in a movie and that's not counting as adapting anything. You just have knowledge of the past to put in your movie. I love that. I, I have to, I'll find out later when the Academy realized, like, what's one word that could say all of those things? But, yes, it's weird to think, was there a time where they're like, well, I mean, it's based on a real person and what he said. So I guess that's kind of adapting a thing, isn't it? Is that original? I don't, we've got to be careful about this. We don't get in trouble. Classic Academy garbage. I am so excited to watch The Godfather. I can't even tell you. I haven't seen it. I haven't sat and watched it in, I can't even remember. And we're, and like, this is, we're, now we're getting into the, the good stuff. From Godfather through One from the Heart, I'm going to be so excited because it's all good. Even the few, uh, there's still a few uh, screenwriter for hire movies. I'm excited about those movies too. Like, it's all like, we're getting in the 70s, my favorite decade of movies. And we're going to do The Godfathers and, conversation apocalypse I mean, it's, i'm so excited to see all these movies because they're all great they're all like masterpieces they're all some of the best movies ever and i have not sat and watched any of them in at least a decade so i'm pumped when we watch apocalypse now when we watch all the versions of apocalypse now <laughs> where i think we'll see a lot of similarities between colonel kilgore and Patton. when coppola won best screenplay for this he was had been hired already to work on the godfather and was about to be fired when he won best original screen screenplay he credits that win with helping him not get fired off of the godfather who knows where his career would have been if that hadn't happened well we'll talk more about that next time all right well i think we're done here where we've made an episode as long as Patton. so i think we're ready to sign off Thanks for listening, uh, tuning in. All right, we are on social media at the Director's Wall. At the Director's Wall, you can email us, uh, directorswall at gmail.com. Vulcan Video is not a thing anymore, but uh, if you were a customer or recognize either of us from your time patronizing Vulcan Video in the good way, thank you. We hope everyone listening to this is doing well and we will make you an offer you can't refuse it's our godfather episode coming up next for over a thousand years roman conquerors returning from the wars enjoyed the honor of a triumph a tumultuous parade in the procession came trumpeters and musicians and strange animals from the conquered territories together with carts laden with treasure and captured armaments. The conqueror rode in a triumphal chariot, the dazed prisoners walking in chains before him. Sometimes his children robed in white 
stood with him in the chariot or rode the trace horses. A slave stood behind the conqueror, holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear a warning that all glory is fleeting.